0: All right, so we're taking a little break from the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. And for the, for the next three Sundays, we will be in Luke chapter 1, looking at the, the beginning of the gospel, really, how the, how the story of Jesus begins. Um, there's, there's quite a bit that goes on in, uh, in, in Luke 1. First of all, we have two annunciations. That just means announcement. One to Zechariah here and the next, next week, come back and we'll look at the, uh, the Annunciation to Mary. Then Mary visits Elizabeth in the middle part of the chapter, and then, and then we have Mary's Song of Praise, the Magnificat, which is beautiful, um, beautiful poetry. And then we have the birth of John the Baptist and Zechariah's prophecy at the end. So we're going to cover a lot of ground. It's a great story. Um, it's a beautiful story, really, of, of two families. Um, and what God does through them to bring about his plan. So that's what we're gonna do this month. Um, this morning, as we look at Luke 1, uh, 5 through 25, we're looking at uh, what I've entitled the beginning of the end, and, and I'll show you why. But it breaks down, it, it's a story, and I love, I love teaching stories, there's so much here. Um, it breaks down into roughly four parts. Um, the priests, we have the priest in verses 5 through 12, that's Zechariah and his wife, we have the good news in 13 through 17. That's the announcement by the angel. We have doubt and silence, verses 18 through 23, and then conception in verses 24 and 25. So as I, as I said, as I hinted at earlier, Advent means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And there's, I think we can all agree that there's no, never been any Advent more important than the one that happens right here in this chapter with Jesus coming into our world. It's the beginning of the gospel. It's the beginning of our salvation. And it's why we celebrate it every year at the end of the year. So that's Advent. But I wanna start by giving you a little glimpse of what each of the four gospel writers um, makes of Jesus's childhood. It's very interesting. If you just survey the first couple chapters of every gospel, um, Luke is by far the most detailed. The first two chapters are all about uh, laying the groundwork for the story, right? Um, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, it jumps right in. It, j- it just completely bypasses Jesus' childhood and it just starts right in with these words, John appeared. That's it, John appeared. And when you read Luke, it's almost like Luke says, oh, well, John appeared, but let me tell you how John appeared, right? Let's go back and because there's something here actually, too. There was something miraculous that happened. John didn't just appear. Mark has his reasons for jumping right into the ministry of Jesus, but Luke goes further back and he says, actually, even before Jesus was conceived, something else was happening. God was moving. And Luke identifies this right here as the beginning of the story of Jesus. And it, it's not Jesus. It's his prophet. It's his great prophet who is conceived right here in these verses. So that's our, that's our outline, that's where we're going. Let's start right in and look at this priest. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there's a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. So why would, when you think about it, why would God, why would Jesus' story begin with a priest? Have you ever thought about that? According to Luke, it begins with the priest just doing his duty in the temple. This man, Zechariah, and he's an old man and his wife is old as well. Why, why would it start here? I mean, if you read the later account of Jesus's ministry, didn't the priests hate Jesus? Didn't they, didn't they fight with him constantly? Didn't they challenge him at every point? So why would the story of Jesus begin with a priest? To answer that, we have to go all the way back and remember where the priesthood has come from. It began with two brothers, Who am I thinking of? You remember? Levites, Moses, and Aaron, brothers, all the way back in the beginning. Moses was the one that God appointed to bring Israel out of Egypt, and Aaron was the brother who God appointed to serve as the first high priest in a long line of priests. So it began with Moses and Aaron back in the book of Exodus. And this priesthood lasted through something like 1,400 years of Israel's history, and it's still going in the days of Jesus. But I want to take you back to Malachi chapter 2, and I want to just refresh our memory at this point where the priesthood has ended up. It began with Moses, who, who most Israelites considered their greatest prophet. He gave them the law. More accurately, God gave them the law through Moses, who is this great prophet. And the Torah was the most important part of their scriptures. So Moses is this great prophet, and Aaron is this great priest. But everything didn't go well. And it says in Malachi 2, verse 7, "...for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge." And people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's who a priest is supposed to be. But you, speaking to the priesthood, God says, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction there are serious problems in the priesthood at this point in Israel's history it's rotten with corruption and pride and hypocrisy as Jesus will go on to point out during his ministry but but there was, there was at least one priest who was not that way One priest who was not partaking of that pride and that corruption and that self-serving hypocrisy and that that man's name was Zechariah and he was old, says that he was aged, advanced in years, and his wife was also walking blamelessly in the law of the Lord. These people were faithful. They took the law of God seriously for what it was, not for their own personal gain and they were authentic, and they were genuine in their faith in the sight of God. So when we read about these people, when we know what the priesthood was, and we read about this man, it's natural to ask, why wouldn't God bless this exemplary couple, this couple who is doing things right, who is walking in their faith before him? Why wouldn't they bless him and her with many, many children? Why wouldn't their family look like one of the large families that comes in here every week, why wouldn't they be trailing five or six or seven kids behind them? Why not? Why would God withhold children from a faithful couple like this? Why not reward their faithfulness? It actually created even more problems because to these people in this time, barrenness was a judgment, was seen as a judgment from God. If you didn't have children, everyone would assume, the entire community would assume that it's because there's something wrong with your lifestyle, there's something sinful there, God doesn't like it, and he's withholding children from you. That's the way they saw it. So what we have here is a couple that's walking faithfully before the Lord, but being judged and condemned by their community, most likely. So Luke goes out of his way to let us know that these people aren't being punished. They were both faithful and barren so far. And what he shows us here is that their fruitfulness was not denied, it was just delayed. That's so important to this story, that their fruitfulness, their son, he made them wait a long time. So I titled this the beginning of the end and I wanna explain to you why that's the title and it has to do with the priesthood. Zechariah's division is on duty, it says. And it's his turn to go into the temple to burn incense. So this would have been either after the evening sacrifice or before the morning sacrifice. So it was probably late at night or early in the morning. It was probably dark outside. And by lot, which is just a way of drawing lots, it's a way of deciding by chance who gets to do something, by lot, Zechariah is chosen to carry fire from the altar of the burnt offering that's outside into the holy place. Not the most holy place, but the courtyard or the the room just outside of the most holy. It's the the room of the priests, the holy place, and take it to the altar of incense there. So there there were 24 at the time. There were 24 courses of priests who would take turns for a week at a time serving at the temple. And there there were as many as 18,000 priests in Israel, which means that this moment, this thing that Zechariah is doing is possibly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. It's definitely a rare occasion. Okay, this is special for him. He gets to go into the place that he's heard about his entire career. Maybe Maybe he's been in there before. But no matter what, this is special. I get to preach to you every week. This was something that a priest would only get to do once, probably. And it's his turn. Now, entering the temple, as, as I'm sure you're, you're, you're tasting or you're feeling in this, in this passage, entering the temple meant approaching the presence of God. The most holy place is where the, the holy presence of the Lord dwelt. And the closer you got to him, the more you would sense that presence and he gets to go in to the holy place just outside the holy of holies and it's a beautiful scene because right on the other side of the door the community of believers is praying they're probably praying for him you know why because it's dangerous to be in the presence of the lord because it's dangerous to be inside of the temple they're praying for him they're praying for their their own needs they're praying for their country they're praying for the hopefully for the spiritual state of their city and the, and the believers in this place. God's people are gathered and praying and he's doing this thing that is so special to him. So the thing to note here is that it, it, Luke goes out of his way to report that not only not only is Zechariah a Levite, but Elizabeth is too. She's from the daughters of Aaron. She traces her lineage back to that first high priest And this is the one who will be pregnant with the great prophet, John. So what this means is that God brings the final and the greatest prophet in the Old Testament tradition. He brings that prophet out of the priesthood. The final prophet of Israel comes from the priesthood. And that's significant because the priesthood, for all of its problems, it has one final, important role to play in God's redemptive plan. And it's not mediating forgiveness. Their sacrifices were gonna be irrelevant very soon. Their role, the final role that they have to play is producing the prophet whose career would overlap with the Messiah's and he would announce and he would prepare the way for this Messiah that had been long awaited. So you might say that Zechariah is the first person to step across that threshold into a new age of history. The angel comes to a priest because God is setting up a new priesthood. That's what's happening here. The real high priest is about to be born, and he will have a Levitical prophet to announce his coming, a man, a man who represents both the priesthood and the office of prophecy down through the ages In John, he's a Levitical prophet and he will take the torch of Moses and of Aaron and he will hand it to Jesus. And that's why it's so significant that both Zechariah and Elizabeth are Levites. Now he will do this, John will do this. And there's lots of material in here about what John preached and what he did. He will do this thing, and all of the priests and the prophets come down to one man, this, this one who's a baby when we first meet him, John the Baptist. And what does John the Baptist say? In John 3.30, looking at Jesus, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. So when he says that, when John says that, he's speaking for the entire tribe of Levi and the entire prophetic office that came before him. Jesus is the true and final priest, the true and final prophet, and he must increase. That's what's happening here. The greatest prophet of Israel said those words, and this man is his father. He's just a humble priest going about his work in the temple. So that's the setup. That's the scene that we have. Now we have the good news. Something there's a complication in the story in verse thirteen. Actually, it starts in verse eleven. It says there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Listen, if something goes wrong inside the temple, that could be bad for him. Something is out of the ordinary, and he messes up. Okay, they had it. This was well rehearsed. He knew exactly what to do. Probably counting his footsteps. And here's something that's not supposed to be there. <laughs> an angel waiting to tell him something. But what I love about this, what I love about it, is it's not an angel who's just standing there with his arms crossed all solemn about it. This is a happy angel. Do you get that? He's really, he's really, really excited to tell Zechariah the news. He has a message and he just, as soon as Zechariah comes in, it, does, it doesn't say that Zechariah said anything. It says as soon as he comes in, the angel starts talking. He's really happy about this message that he has to bring. It's good news, he says. And this is what he says. He says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you'll call his name John. This is, this is the message. I, I love this, too, the, the, uh, the, the old The English commentator, J.C. Ryle, he points out that in scripture, the angels are always, always intensely interested in Jesus and anything that has to do with Jesus. It's almost exclusively what they care about. And they come to us and and they stand in front of us and they're like, don't you understand what a big deal this is? Always, that is always the tone of their message. How can you sit there? We've been we've been talking about this in heaven for a thousand years. And you're shrugging your shoulders. They are thrilled, they're bursting with the news that God is doing this thing. Jesus is the center of the angels' attention. Do you see that? It's it, it, he, he he is all they seem to think about. And Gabriel, he says his name later, doesn't say it here, but Gabriel is excited. He is excited to bring this news. So I want you to, before we move on, I just want you to to notice four things um, about the son that's promised here. First of all, he'll, he'll be full of the spirit his whole life long. And for those of us who live on the other side of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, for those of us who believe the gospel and know what it's like to have the Holy Spirit inside of us, this might not mean as much as it meant to them, they were still, until, until Jesus died on the cross, they were still in Old Testament times. And so for a person to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb was extraordinary. That was quite a thing that he would, that he would say, that he would be filled with the Spirit, even as a baby, even as a baby in utero, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and it would, and, and from then on until the day he died. Extraordinary a special person, only a special person would be filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. Second, that he would have a profound influence on his people. It says, um, many will rejoice at his birth and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Have a profound influence on his people. His message would not always be well received, but it would be heard loud and clear. He will turn many he will turn the hearts of many to their God. What a, what a great thing to hear. I mean, as a parent, to know that your child would have that kind of role in God's kingdom, this is what they had been waiting for. This is what they had been praying for for hundreds of years. And now here comes someone who's going to have a central role in that plan. Third, that he would be endowed with the spirit and power of the, of the greatest Old Testament prophet of action. Now I put it that way because if you were to ask a Jewish person, probably then and and probably today, who the greatest prophet was, they would probably say Moses. Because, like we said earlier, he he the Torah came through Moses. But there's a second prophet, and he. Do you realize that we don't have an Old Testament book of Elijah? Do we? He wasn't a writer. He wasn't. He did deliver messages to people, but. Unlike the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Isaiah, through whom God had a lot to say, Elijah was a prophet of action primarily. When you think about it, the, things, the stories about him are about him raising the dead and defeating the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. All of these things that he did, he was a prophet of action. And so when the angel tells Zechariah, your son is going to be in the spirit and power of Elijah, what he's saying is he's gonna be a prophet of action. He's going to do things that get that change people. And the primary thing that he would do would be to baptize and also to preach repentance. But he would be different and he would be powerful and they wouldn't be able to ignore him because of he would be just like Elijah. And then the fourth thing is that he would be given a precious mission, precious to God's people. It says that, he was he was being sent to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and here it is the mission to make ready for the lord a people prepared what a calling what an amazing calling to be given now before we go any further i want to give you two two proofs that this was from god's hand from from the old testament i want to show you from the old testament that this was very intentionally a fulfillment of prophecy. And, and Andrew already read one of the, one of the things. The, the first thing is the reference to prophecy. And the second thing is the historic pattern. So Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. These are the last two verses in the Old Testament, by the way. These are the last, this is the last thing God had to say before he went quiet for 400 years. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will what? He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so here we are in the temple and an angel is telling a priest that your miracle baby is gonna turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And he's referencing that prophecy that had come 400 years earlier. And he's saying it's happening. It's starting right now. It's starting in your family. It's starting in the womb of your wife. Now, that's the other, that's the other way we know that this is from God is, is the historic pattern. Anyone remember off the top of your head, there are some women in the Old Testament who conceived miraculously. Can you think of anybody? Shout it out. Hannah? Hannah? And Sarah. Those are the two that I have written down. Hannah, who she was not old. We're not told that Hannah was old. It's the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. We're not told that Hannah was old, but she had been barren for a long time. So she wasn't young. And she had been begging and pleading with God to give her a son, and God finally does. And it's the prophet Samuel. And then. Back in Genesis, the nation of Israel began with a miraculous birth, You remember that? With a miraculous conception, just like this one. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, waited decades until she was way past, way past childbearing time. And then God said, here's your son, Isaac, and she gets pregnant, she is old and barren, And so we have the son of a promise in Sarah and Isaac, and we have the son of a desperate request in Hannah and Samuel. And so twice in the history of Israel, at least twice, God had given a highly important son to a barren woman, one of whom was well beyond her childbearing years. And that means that whenever God, listen, it's a signal. When God gives a miracle son to a barren but faithful woman, his plan to save the world is about to move forward. And that's your first point, fill in the blank in your bulletins there. When God gives a miracle son to a barren but faithful woman, his plan to save the world is about to move forward. And that's what's happening here. Zechariah's son would make the people ready for their savior. He would soften their hearts. He would talk to them about their sin as prophets do, and he would baptize them into repentance. And that, that was a long time coming. That was hundreds of years in the waiting. In a sense, this is so interesting to me, because do you know that in the, in the Old Testament, how many times does God refer to Israel as a, as a woman, as his wife? You remember that? All of the times he's talked about Israel. You're you're my unfaithful bride, but I still love you. So Israel is like a woman in the Old Testament and the prophets. And in a sense, Israel herself, at this point in history, is like a barren woman. Well past the time when anyone would say she can still bring life into this world. That's Israel. That's the nation of Israel at this time. And yet, Here it comes. And when that happens, God's doing something. When everyone has given up hope, that's when God likes to move. Now, I'm not gonna call anyone out. However, we do have some people in this room this morning who we might say were advanced in years. Do we not? And what if, I'm just saying, what if, one of you walked in next week through the back door and said, this is crazy, but after Dory, I'm up. It's my turn. What would that be like? That would get our attention, wouldn't it? That would, that would get our attention as a community. God, we would not be able to ignore the fact that God's doing something. God's doing something. Do you see why Luke started with this? You see, because he talked to those who were here for this and he knows that this made ripples in the community. It says, it says in verse 14, many will rejoice at his birth. This wasn't private. You can't, it's very, very difficult to keep a pregnancy private. And so this would be a sign not just to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but to the entire community. The pregnancy itself would be a sign, let alone the baby who comes All right, so our next section, what do we see next? And it's Zechariah's reaction to this news. And I've entitled this Doubt and Silence. How you respond to the gospel when you hear it is the most important thing you will ever do. How you respond to the gospel when you hear it is the most important thing you will ever do. So watch closely what happens when Zechariah hears the gospel And what he says in verse 18, he says to the angel, how will I know this? In other words, I hear what you're saying, but how is this going to work? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. It's almost like he didn't even hear anything after verse 13, right? It's like he hears like, don't be afraid. Your prayer's been heard. Your wife's going to be pregnant and bear a son. And then he just like melted down after that. And the rest of it didn't make it all the way in. It's like you can, you can just hear him saying, and you can relate to it, I think. can I get Can I get the logistics? How? How is this going to? My wife's advanced in years. I'm an old man. Maybe he's thinking, you know this, he's an angel, maybe he doesn't know about menopause. <laughs> you know, like maybe he doesn't understand the biology of the thing. like, can you explain this a little bit? What are you What are you telling me or or maybe he's thinking how am I supposed to explain this to Elizabeth? Like, how am I gonna tell her what you're telling me? Can you go tell her? You know, like, so you can see how this is just, it opens a can of worms inside of him, right? You can see that. And we can laugh and we can have a good time with it. And it is funny. It's probably part of the reason God likes to do this to people because it's funny. And, but, but Gabriel doesn't seem as amused. He, 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 Zechariah, he's, he's being obtuse, but it's even worse than that. You look at verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. He's pulling out the, he's, he's pulling out his title now. I'm Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. Okay. That's who I am. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And you know what the word good news means? Gospel. Gospel. That, that word good news is translated gospel. And that's why I'm using the word gospel this morning to talk about this message because it's the gospel. He's telling him the gospel. Now what this means, what we see in this little interaction here, Zechariah's doubt, Gabriel's reaction, is that the gospel is a declaration that comes straight from the throne of God with the expectation that it will be believed and welcomed as good news. That's what the gospel is. It's not a proposition to be evaluated at your leisure. It is not a request for your willing participation. When the gospel is announced to you, it is expected that you would believe it and that you would celebrate it. And so when Gabriel says, you're not getting it, you're not hearing me, I was sent to tell you this as good news and so act like it. The only acceptable response to the gospel is celebration and faith. And you notice what Gabriel isn't saying, what he isn't telling Zechariah, he does not come and say, "Like God, God wants to know if you're okay with having a baby. Like I know you're old and sleep's already a problem for you, but God wants to know, are you okay with a baby? Can we give you a baby? That's not what's happening. He's also not saying, let me explain all the nuts and bolts of how it's gonna work saying, you're gonna have a baby, get ready. This is great, isn't this great? And Zechariah is not feeling like it's great. So what happens, what happens in verse 20, it says, you, you will be silent and unable to speak until the, the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah is dumbstruck, his voice is taken away until he's ready to celebrate what he's just been told. The next time he speaks, and we'll look at that on Christmas Eve. We'll look at that. The next time he speaks, his mouth will be full of praise for the God who has given him and Elizabeth, the wife that he loves, a miracle baby, which they wanted, which they have been longing for all these years. And so one thing we need to realize about the gospel right here, we think of it as a nice thing, just a pleasant a pleasant message we're forgiven and it is that it is comforting it is pleasant it's much more than that it's 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 beautiful but i want to say this to you the gospel is easy to admire in theory but it's often messy and it's always disruptive when it comes to bear on our real lives okay it's easy to admire it in theory and we do that and it's not wrong But when the gospel comes to us and it actually starts to change things in life, that's not so easy. That tempts us to say, how do I know what you're saying is true? Like Zechariah right here. It upsets the status quo and we quite like the status quo, don't we? Don't we? I do. Something's out of the ordinary. If I don't get my coffee in the morning, I mean, I'm not gonna say that I'm, that I'm mean about it, but something's wrong, something's off if, if my status quo is upset. And that's what Zechariah, I think, what he's putting his finger on right here. Now, after all these years, now, what's happening? Zechariah was a good Israelite who loved the idea. He loved the idea of the Messiah coming to save his people. And that's what's being announced to him, and he knows it. And yet he still hesitates because now it's affecting his life. The gospel is invading his life. It's intruding on his family. It's producing radical changes in this late hour of his marriage. One of the refrains of Advent, we'll see it next week too, is do not be afraid. And this is why. Advent is when God does something radically new and disruptive. When his ancient mercies come to us as suddenly and unexpectedly when his grace floods our lives and breaks over us like a brilliant sunrise. The arrival of God's power is never comfortable or expected and it turns our lives upside down. It does that. When God's grace begins to dawn on you in power, it's, it can be disturbing. It's not like a, like a serene experience of enlightenment. It's more like being struck by lightning. He's experiencing that right here. Now, I wanna say too that I'm reluctant to characterize what happens to Zechariah as a punishment or a discipline. We usually read it like that, but let me, let me show you why I don't, really, I don't really see it that way. There's grace in this there's mercy in this really when you think about it it's more like the natural result of unbelief because unbelief renders us incapable of telling others the good news that we have heard do you see that that's what the angel says what gabriel says in verse 20 he says you will be silent and unable to speak because you did not believe my words and when you and I don't believe the good news, how can we tell anyone else about it? He's not believing it, so he can't say it. Do you see? There's a lot of symmetry. There's a, there's a lot of irony in what is, what, what is happening here. And so I want to ask you, where have you noticed yourself hesitating with God? Is your heart dull to the things that he has told you to rejoice in? If so, I want you to consider Zechariah's example that it's because you have not believed the gospel. Now, this is so important. God did not condemn Zechariah to solitary confinement. He just didn't. That's not what happens here. There's no reason to read any harshness into this. He had the joy. He still had the joy of watching his wife's belly grow. And for all we know, he had some rich times of of communion with the Lord inwardly during these preceding months. And when he finally opens his mouth, it's full of praise. He doesn't have, he doesn't necessarily have a rotten time in these next nine months. Life can be pretty good without a voice. Life may have been very good for Elizabeth for a while. (laughs) Amen, ladies. Here's the point, though. Even when you can't speak, you can still pray because you can think your prayers. And God's ear was open to Zechariah in that way. Does that make sense? So when you feel like you don't have a voice, there is still one person who's listening. Now, the last thing that happens, and we'll wrap this up quickly because we still have to take the Lord's Supper here. The last thing that happens, it's very... I love, I love how concise scripture is. There's no, there's no ornament to it. It just says, after these days, Elizabeth conceived. That, that huge miracle, the, the beginning of God's plan coming to fruition with two words, Elizabeth conceived. And if you knew who Elizabeth was, you would know what it meant that she conceived. Elizabeth conceived. And what this means is that that back and forth that Zechariah had with Gabriel inside the holy place, it had no effect on what God had already made up his mind to do. He blesses Zechariah anyways. So I think there's three, there's three principles that we can learn from this. And the first is that, that doubt does not stop the gospel from bearing fruit. And that's good news. I know that's good news for me because if the kingdom could only ever advance on perfect, wholehearted, instant faith, Who is sufficient, right? God can use a mustard seed of faith, and he does. That's how he works. Zechariah's doubt didn't throw a monkey wrench into God's plan. God addressed it, and he still moved his plan forward. The second thing, principle that we can learn from the fact that Elizabeth conceived is that God makes us wait He does make us wait for the good things on which his kingdom is built. How long had they been faithful? How long had they been praying and pleading with God for this baby? How long had they borne the shame of their community thinking that their lifestyle was keeping God from blessing them with the baby? How long? He made them wait, and yet here is the blessing. They had waited 60, 70, 80 years to become parents, The family of Abraham, who these people are a part of, they waited nearly 2,000 years to receive their inheritance. And then the, the third principle we can get from the fact that Elizabeth conceived is that sometimes in God's providence, the final years of a person's life are the most fruitful. And that's a word to some of you in this room who are advanced in years. God will use you. God is using you right here in this church. Sometimes those final years are the most fruitful. But in any season of life, the fruit that the gospel bears is not necessarily what we would choose for ourselves. So here's a recap of what happens here. Gabriel comes and announces the gospel to Zechariah, who is slow to believe, yet the blessing is not removed because of his doubt. It's his voice that is taken away and only for a time so that he has nine months to think about how he wants to respond to the gospel the next time he gets a chance. That's what happens here. And this is the pattern that God uses in all of our lives. He uses ordinary means like the, the common love of a husband and a wife to bear unimaginable fruit like miracle babies. It's not neat and tidy, It upsets the status quo, but what would life be? What would life be without it? That's Advent. Let's pray.